welcome to Objection, a spotlight on justice. This is Ruth, Hetva, and Paloma. Today we're joined by Mano, the San Francisco public defender. He got his bachelor's from Columbia University, followed by a master's and a JD from the University of California, Berkeley. Today he's here to talk to us about his experience in law and the justice system as a whole. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Paloma, Ruth, and Hetva. It's an honor to be here with you all. So to kick this off, what was your pathway to choosing a legal career? Did you always aspire to become a lawyer or did you have any other ideas at first? I did not always aspire to be a lawyer. Um, you know, like when I was a kid, like a lot of us, I'm sure several things ran across my plate. Uh, I think at one point I was really interested in like actually doing brick work, like bricklayer, um, uh, masonry, I guess is the term. Um, or being a shooting guard for the Lakers that didn't quite pan out. And, but then in, I, but I knew based on my, um, you know, background and my parents are from a village in India and my, uh, sort of their analysis, which infused into me and, and race dynamics here. I wanted to do something that was people oriented. eventually I wound up while in, uh, as an undergraduate, and I was doing a lot of studies about colonialism and, and one of my professors Rex, said, hey, there's a critical race theorist. And that's now that's in the news a lot these days at Columbia that you should maybe think about working for. So I became his research assistant. assistant. He's a man by the name of professor by the name of Kendall Thomas, who's one of the founders of the critical race theory movement. And he really encouraged me to go to law school, which I eventually did at UC Berkeley. Okay, that was so cool. Okay, I love that. So how did you feel when you were contacted to run to be the public defender? And what was it like running for the position? You know, it was, um, first of all, that all happened in a big whirlwind because of, you know, Jeff Adachi's un untimely passing and he was really uh, uh, inspiration to me. I initially, was talking to when city hall contacted me talking about talking to them about the importance of being someone inside our office because you know the culture that we built in our office is one that really thrives on aggressive advocacy thrives on leaving leaving no stone unturned in our investigation thrives on really fighting hard for our clients i wanted to be sure that that tradition continued when i started talking to them and they said well, okay well, what about you um and i said Okay, that's something I would certainly consider if it's something that the people in my office supported. And a lot of people started coming up to me in the office and asking me to really make, you know, put my name in there. And so I thought if there's enough people in the office who like the way that I practice law, like the way that I've managed, who think I'd be appropriate for it, then I'm going to jump in with both feet. At the time, we I moved out to Oakland, so it's not something that could happen immediately. And, when the mayor contacted me, she just said, you know, this is an elected position, so you have to move to San Francisco to make this happen. So that was the hurdle. So I had to talk to my family and say, listen, I know we have a nice situation here, a lot of friends nearby, a little warmer on that side of the bay. We'll have to move back to San Francisco where I'd lived earlier to do this. But I thought, especially in this moment, um, you know, the Breonna Taylor, George Floyd moment of sort of more uh, race consciousness and awareness of the injustice of the system it was um, a good time to step in, step into this moment, and um, you know, try to, to hopefully take us to even a, a, another level. 
in the office. That's actually really amazing. And going off what we were saying earlier about the advocacy that goes on in the office and the legacy of Jeff Adachi, from someone who has shadowed a public defender and is now working with and alongside the public defender's office, I have noticed there is a very large familial aspect to the office and everyone works so closely together. And I do think that that's amazing. It's one of the coolest work environments that I've ever witnessed in my short 15 years of seeing what work is like. But mm -hmm. yeah, can you talk a little bit more about what the family familial aspect is of the public defender's office and how that came to be? Yeah, well, I think it's just something, you know, if you are doing a public defender, doing it the right way, you really have to do it with your full heart. You know, you have to be seeking like the thrill of victory. You have to be able to deal with the agony of defeat. You have to really, you know, put a lot of passion, a lot of grit, a lot of skill, a lot of effort. And it's not just an individual effort. I mean, in any case, you're as an attorney, you're working with social, a social worker. You may be working with an investigator. You're working with the paralegal. Our clerical staff is vital. Our IT staff is vital to the things we do. Um, and now we're working on uh, broader issues, trying to contribute to structural change of the system. But it's really any victory that we have is rarely one that's just one individual. It's often uh, collective. And, and you need to be someone who can work well with others to be an effective public defender. And because there's that sort of underdog component. The reality is the district attorney has way more funding than we do as do the police, sheriff, probation. Um, you know, there's that underdog aspect that really draws us together. And you really have to do this because it's a calling for you. And if it is, then that family aspect comes along with that. And then there's a lot of, you know, because you put so much into it, it's, you don't have to explain a lot. So you end up sometimes hanging out with other public defenders because they understand the kind of work you're doing and I think that really contributes to the family aspect. That is so cool. I want to be a public defender and no public defenders. This just, it warms my heart. It warms my heart. So what is the average day as a public defender? So what does it look like? And if you would like to touch on what it's like in the day of life of the public defender, then you can also touch on that as well, because it is so interesting to be in the presence of one of the only elected public defenders in the country. Well, let me start with um, what a typical day is like for a public defender, because the answer to that is there is no typical day. Um, the reality is, you know, there's so many varied aspects to what this work entails. If you're in trial, it is pretty much all of your waking moments, uh, other than the, the few hours you may get to sleep, um, you're pretty much working on that trial nonstop. Um, when I started misdemeanors, my routine was, you know, I started in Contra Costa County as a misdemeanor attorney, and they would, in, on Thursday morning, have that jury coming in at 8.30, and they would really try to, like, write a tri type trial schedule to have it done by Friday, so there was no messing around. So I would often wake up literally at 2 by practices to wake up at two o'clock in the morning on Thursday night and just work through and then keep going until Friday. Then I sort of come home and be pretty exhausted, but the adrenaline keeps you going. So when you're in trial, that's everything. But when you're not in trial, you might be going out working with your investigator on investigation. I personally like to go out to scenes, like to talk to witnesses myself, like to get a feel like to get out of the office and do that. I think that's really vital to go out to community and do be a part of the investigation yourself as an attorney, even if you're not an investigator, you're also working on motions. You may be going to court to do 
other types of hearings that are not trial hearings, um, coming back, returning phone calls from clients. So it's it's always a, it's called a triage thing where you're balancing all the different needs. And the reality is there's always more to do with anyone's caseload. It's at a certain point, you just decide, okay, I'm gonna go home now, but there's so many different aspects uh, to being a public defender, but they're all super important. And you know, now I'm in more national conversations as the public defender in terms of really trying to think about what the field means. And one thing um, that they've come up with that we've been talking about the national at the National Association of Public Defenders, which I'm a member of, um, and on the steering committee of, is that on the one hand, you're a counselor to your client, right? You're trying to counsel them to make the best decision. And no matter what the outcome of this case is, hopefully their life moves in a more positive direction at the end of this case. You're also the warrior, someone who's gonna fight for them, leave no stone unturned, fight as hard as you can to get the best result. But then the other side, especially in this moment is you're also partly an activist. You're recognizing the structural problems with what I call our criminal injustice system, and you're trying to make it better. And there's ways in when you pivot around that triangle from counsel to war counselor to warrior, to activists that you can have the most impact. That is so cool. And it was really interesting to hear what you have to say. So I'm now going to pass it on to the one and only Hetva to take it away. Thank you so much, Paloma. Of course. Thanks, Paloma. That was really awesome. Um, earlier, you were mentioning that there's really kind of an underdog aspect to your job and that you really like to get in the field yourself and work with witnesses and clients like on one-on-one. -on -one. What was the hardest case that you've worked on and what was your favorite case or the most rewarding case? Wow, I've worked on a lot of different cases. Um, I would say some of the hardest cases have also been my most favorite cases and maybe for that reason. And I'll talk about one area in particular, uh, which is what the prosecution calls gang cases. Because what you find in those cases, and what I found in San Francisco is they'll often prosecute someone and call them a gang member solely based on the neighborhood they live in, the color of their skin, and sometimes even their own family members, the people that they obviously are gonna grow up around. And they won't factor in a lot of aspects of that individual's life, that young person's life. They'll only look at the things that they think are negative. And what makes those cases challenging is you're not just dealing with the actual crime that they think that they're alleging was committed. They're saying, well, so-and-so who might be 10, 15 years old in your client did something else on another day. And so-and-so did something else over here and, and you're sitting there next to your client. He's like, what does this have to do with me? I don't even know who that person is. And there's all this evidence coming in um, about that they're using, try to associated your client with this other group. So um, that's, and that's what makes it challenging is there's just so much evidence that is coming in and they'll go as far as like, you know, looking at letters that went into the jail, looking at some YouTube videos and trying to break down the lyrics and say, your client was watching this video or was in this video. So therefore we think that song has to do with something that they were going to do, even though, you know, my client's telling me that's just a song. I was just, it has nothing to do with this. So, but there's a lot of work you have to do for that. What makes it my favorite though, is it gives us an opportunity to change the narrative and to get in there and show though, you totally misunderstand this individual and you totally under, misunderstand the context of what was happening here. 
I've done some training on these cases. One thing I tell other attorneys to do and advise them to do is to actually go out and spend time in that particular neighborhood. Go to the community center, talk to some people. Go talk to the basketball coach. Go sit in your client's grandmother's home and really get a deeper understanding of who that individual is and what the challenges are. And when you do that, you're not just intellectually knowing your client's not a gang member, you start feeling it like in your soul and your heart, you actually know. And the juries can pick up on the fact that you have that deeper understanding. And one thing that was helpful, what I started doing is, you know, cause they would bring in someone, a quote unquote gang expert, who's a cop, who's basically trying to figure out any way he can to nail your clients. And I started calling a community expert. And the first one I called was actually someone I used to, you know, pick up basketball game with who would bring people from this particular neighborhood that I knew they were charging my client from. And he was like, no, that's not a gang. That's just uh, a group that knows each other for a particular reason. And then I had him qualified as a community expert. And the district attorney was objecting. They were saying, well, he's not an expert in gangs. And I'm like, well, that's perfect because my client's not a gang member. You call your gang expert. I'll call my community expert. And we'll have the jury decide what's right. And then once that happened one time, then he was able to get qualified as an expert more often. And now that's become a part of the culture here to have community experts coming into the court. Because a lot of times there's a big distance between where the jurors may come from and some of the neighborhoods that our clients come from. And even though this city isn't that big, the reality is for some people, certain parts of the city are actually a foreign country almost. It's very different. And to bridge that gap, it's important to have community experts that can help jurors understand the broader context. And I found uh, like having success in those cases has made them, it has been extremely rewarding and exhilarating. I think that's really awesome. And especially like what you said about like kind of getting to know people and getting to know the community. I think that really highlights the role of compassion and empathy in the public defender's role. And I think that's something that's really valuable, especially with the broader context of the justice system in general. Um, you used the phrase, the criminal injustice system earlier. Um, what issues do you see that make the system really not really one that is supporting justice a lot of the time, particularly in San Francisco? And what changes do you think need to be made? Uh, well, there's many aspects to it, but I can focus on three. One of them is this concept of overcharging. You know, you can take a case that you could charge as like maybe a misdemeanor or not even charge. You may just call the parents and say, hey, there's an issue here on this playground, you know, or that same case in, in a certain neighborhood might be handled that way by calling the parents or by charging it a misdemeanor. In another part of town, if that happens or in another city, they'll charge it as two strikes or depending on the, you know, uh, race of the and the neighborhood of someone. So that what happens when something is quote unquote overcharged is that, you know, oh, you're looking at two, three strikes. And even though the client may feel in his heart of hearts, he's not guilty, there's a tendency to say, well, I've charged two strikes, I'll lower to just one strike. Or I charge a strike, I'll get rid of the strike and you complete to a felony. And that overcharging results in a lot of people giving up their rights because they're afraid. They're afraid of the number of charges they're looking at or they're afraid of the amount of time they're looking at. So that's one big problem. Another is what's called um, the trial tax. A lot of times you'll be in a pretrial negotiation and a district attorney or judge might say, hey, let's resolve this case for whether it's one year, two years, six months. But just so you know, if you go to trial, you're looking at 12 years. So you don't have to take this offer, but just so you know, if you're found guilty, we're gonna hammer you 
if you get convicted. And that's something that you have to really have that strong relationship with your client to overcome that and be willing to fight even though they're looking at more time. And it's, but it's, very, it's a very challenging situation. And oftentimes it's routine for a judge to sentence someone to more than what the pretrial offer was, even though nothing really changed. So they're basically punishing our side for exercising our constitutional rights to a jury trial. And then the third aspect that I think needs to be changed is pretrial detention. There's a lot of people who are in custody, having who are presumed innocent and are actually innocent, haven't been convicted of anything, but they're in jail. And then it's common for district attorneys to make an offer that says, listen, if you plead guilty to this, you can go home. And a lot of people don't want to wait for their day in court because they don't like being in jail. So those three things are things that we really need to change. And I think the more awareness we bring to the issue, um, and the more we talk about it, the more we write about it, the more we advocate against it, the more likelihood we can minimize those problems in the system. Absolutely, those are really prevalent, especially in cities with really different demographics. I think mm -hmm. it's even more important. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us here, especially, um, want to become attorneys in the future, and I'm sure a lot of the people watching do as well. Personally, like in high school, involvement in things like mock trial and like debate and stuff has helped me realize that I personally want to be a lawyer, especially when you're doing it like kind of on the national level. How mm -hmm. do you think that youth can really realize if being a lawyer is the right thing for them? And what traits do you think are most important for a public defender to have? That's a great question, Hitba. I think that one, I think what you're doing, which is to actually engage in the process is good, like doing that mock trial. Like I know that when I was in law school and I did, you know, I was possibly thinking about doing tenants work. I was thinking about doing um, possibly immigration or some other form of civil rights. But once I started doing that, whenever I did trial stuff and I did that mock trial in law school and, you know, giving, doing the cross and doing that closing and seeing my client free, even though it was a friend of mine, um, you know, because it was a mock trial, that felt really right. And every time after that, that I started doing trial work, it felt really good. So I think the first of all is to figure out, because there's lots of lawyers that aren't trial lawyers and trial lawyering isn't meant for everyone. And there are other things that you can do to really make a contribution, but so you have to see if it's right for you, right? And I think this is a good step to do something like a mock trial program in high school or in college or in, in law school, if you eventually wind up there. But another really important thing to do is to actually spend some time in the kind of office that you think you might want to work in, whether that is, you know, uh, you know, a civil rights organization or a public defender's office, or perhaps a tenant advocacy uh, organization like I was just talking about, because it's one thing to think about law school, but that's only a couple of years. You're going to be a lawyer for a long time. And the reality is there's a lot of amazing contributions you can make that, that are connected to the work we do, but don't involve being a lawyer. Like our investigators are hugely important to the work we do. Our social workers are hugely important to the work we do. Our paralegals are hugely important to the work we do. Our IT staff, our clerical staff, there's so many areas that you can be involved in that aren't being a lawyer. So while I'm not discouraging anyone from doing that, if that's their dream, I also think you have to figure out if that's the right fit for you. And then you should spend time in the actual office area you think you may want to go in to see what is it like on the day to day. And if you find someone that you can attach yourself who inspires you and you think that's what you want to do, then you should go for it. But I think that's really important. So I think internships like this, Young Defenders, are a great step in that direction. You all, you all have already taken that. I have a lot of respect for all of you for, for taking that plunge. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, really quickly, you just mentioned that you were kind of considering going into maybe other types of law or other fields. Um, specifically, why did you choose, besides you know, your experience with mock trials, why did you choose working in the public sector for the government rather than pursuing the law firm kind of pathway? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I did work, uh, spend a little time at a labor law firm representing unions and representing uh, individual workers. But I think for me, you know, there's one thing which is like, what does, what's the most important work for society? And there's a lot of different kinds of work. But the other that just, what just feels right for you as a fit. And literally, whether I'm watching TV, where I'm, you know, was working for the courts in some period of time, or having an internship somewhere, or uh, observing every time there's that energy of the trial um, and really representing someone, that's where my heart is. That's where my passion is. I love strategizing about, about cases. I love the art of trial. I love fighting for individuals. I love seeing people who in many ways are the most oppressed people in our society actually have small or big victories, You know, whether it's landing, whether it's getting the record expunged, getting that not guilty, winning a motion to suppress. So when the government violates the Fourth Amendment rights and getting the case thrown out, those are victories that have a real tangible impact on people. And it's just so energizing uh, for me to work in that area and to see the real direct impact on individuals and not just individuals and their families. Because the reality is anytime someone suffers a conviction or has to spend time in, in, in jail or in prison, it doesn't just impact them, it impacts their whole community, right? Their whole circle. And so to be able to work and for me, I do have sort of that that drive to fight. So that's part of my personality. So to be in a space where we can where I can do that really just suits suits me. Thank you so much. Yeah, being a fighter is something I think I can definitely connect with on a deep level. And I think my parents would definitely agree that I'm very much a fighter as well. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Um, it was really great talking to you. I want to pass it on to Ruth to close things up. Awesome talking with you, Hatha. Thank you. Um, earlier, earlier when you mentioned like prosecutors trying to um, categorize your clients as like a gang member, um, you know how as a lawyer you were to un understand them, talk to them. When as a lawyer, do you feel more connected and empathetic towards people? I think it's really important. I mean, as Hatha was just mentioning, you really have to, you know, you have to bring skill, you have to bring effort, but you have to bring heart. You have to bring compassion. You have to bring empathy to the job at the same time. And if you don't have that, you probably shouldn't be a public defender. And I think it's really important. I think to you know to really connect with your client. And one thing we encourage people to do is within 48 hours of someone's in custody, we have a rule that you have to go visit them within that first two days because it's so important to make that connection. But then another thing we encourage people to do is don't just talk about the case. Spend at least five ten minutes talking about something having nothing to do with the case because our clients are more than what the police report is describing them as, right? Talk about where they went to high school, like we were just talking about before we got on the show and what they like about it. Talk about their favorite godchild, you know, talk about, you know, an aunt and why you connect with them. Talk about, you know, maybe what one of their goals is in life, something like that, because then you start to get to know people as a full person and not reduce them to what maybe the course or the prosecution is reducing them to, which is the defendant, right? We need to know people in a more full way. And I think it makes you a much better advocate for them. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That makes like a lot of more, it makes it more clear and gives a sense of clarity. Mm -hmm. um, this one is kind of like a personal question, like relating to law, but it's more about your profession. 
mm-hmm. how do you manage to like balance both your work and regular life at home is it hard to leave work at the door especially with, like really high profile cases yes it is <laughs> the short answer is i have this picture of my son when he was about four months here four months old and he's literally surrounded by these binders on this because i did a six-month trial in the first year of his life um and it, it is very tough to balance i mean one thing i try to do regardless is like okay i'm gonna get home and i would do the bedtime so i'm gonna figure out a way to get there and at least rock him to sleep and then until he goes down and then spend then then you know work afterwards so i will try to make a commitment to that piece but it is a challenge to um make that work-life balance um back before i shaved my head when i used to get my hair cut i would often you know i talk to the hairstylist and be like, well, let me tell you about this case. Cause I always like to bounce ideas off non lawyers. Cause I think it's really important to think what a prospective juror would think about a case. And uh, so it is difficult to turn it off, but I think it's super important to, and I've talked about this even in, like I talked about that national association of public defenders really encourage people to find out what's that other thing in your life, whether it's exercise or music or, you know, reading uh have try to have that one other thing that is your decompression point and something else that's unconnected to public defender work because it is important to um you know to have some of that balance because that's what's going to enable you to sustain this work over a long period of time that's a great question thank you thank you um this question earlier we were doing a podcast and recording and as we were finding resources, we saw that like off somewhere that people of color tend to score themselves lower as the average like white male due to like doubt and like pressure from all different types. Have you ever felt that way or has anyone doubted you and how did you prove them wrong? That's a, a great question, Ruth. You know, I've been in settings and professional settings where people tell me like, oh, this is the person you need to go to um, for advice on cases. And often times it is a white male that you're told to go to because they've been the ones in the field for the longest period of time and i found myself in different professional settings where i'll go to that person i'll say okay thank you for that piece of advice that makes the logic sense uh but i'm going to go in a different direction and i think it's really important that you know we start to recognize as people of color the wisdom and the abilities and the skills and the intuitions that you that, that we have and you know make ourselves role our mentors or thought partners uh, for other people of color who are coming up in the field because it's not always easy to find those people so we've started in in the um, bay area an organization called public defenders for racial justice which is led by two women of color that provides a little bit of the space we also have in in the public defender's office the black affinity group and i think it's really important that people realize that sometimes you're going to bring something to the table because of your not in spite of but because of your particular background because of your race because of your ethnicity because of your country of origin because of your gender you know and to really see that as an asset and a strength and figure out how can you bring that front and center into the the conversation into the courtroom, into the trial, into the trial room. And I found that to be, you know, um, something that I find really valuable. And sometimes I talk about that even when I'm empowering jurors, you know, my mother is one of the most brilliant people in my family, but she doesn't have a lot of education. You know, she only went to about seventh or eighth grade, but you know, so when I'm, but I know if she were on a jury, 
she'd be really fighting and she'd be breaking things down. So, and sometimes when I'm talking to jurors, I'll talk about that. I'll say, listen, there's someone who has a PhD on this jury, but every person's opinion is equally important in this jury. And I need you to be able to go to the person who's the PhD and say, if you disagree, say that you disagree, say why you disagree and stick and stick to your principles if, if they're if they're reason ones. And I think that's why it's so important we have that diversity of perspectives, both on juries, but also in the profession. We need people to embrace their individuality and uniqueness and bring that forward. And that's something in the office that I really, you know, I'm trying to push for and in the field in general. And then one final question to close things off for today. What, what inspired the Public Defender's Office to pursue the Young Defenders Program and what did the process look like? Sure, uh, again, a, another great question, Ruth. Uh, I received a call from someone who is who was a teacher at my son's elementary school, who's also part of the Teachers for Social Justice in San Francisco. He gave me a call and said, hey, I have this idea. I'd like to do an internship with your office. And I said, thank you so much for that because the reality is so many people, when they talk about going into criminal justice, you know, it's, it's a probation department or it's police or it's DA and it tends to be, and all the, most of the TV shows are about that side too, like the law enforcement, law and order, all those things. And there's not enough about our side. So I said, this is a great opportunity to get some brilliant young people, brilliant, inspiring young people like yourselves into the office to see the value of the work that we do. And, you know, he's someone who is able to move from an idea to action very quickly. So literally the next week, I was on the phone in a Zoom call with uh, Dr. Davis um, from Human Rights uh, Commission, Opportunities for All, someone from the school district, him, and we were like, we're going we're gonna to do this. And then within the month, I think we had it happening. And I think it's just a great opportunity for young people to, you know, as Haper was talking about it earlier, get exposure to a field that might be interested in. And it helps us to see all of your amazing energy. It makes us better lawyers to have your energy in the building. And, and this time it was over Zoom. We're going to try to get you into the building soon. But it's just an all-around great opportunity. It's an opportunity for um, you know, that work experience for young people and um, some extra pay that's hopefully is helping with a bit of expenses. And then on top of that, um, just the exposure to the field, because we really need to show people a different way. We really need to show people the importance of fighting for people from our perspective, being defenders, how we make huge contributions to what some people call public safety, but I, I like to talk about is community health the importance of fighting for their rights and the beauty of our profession. So it's been just so inspiring to me to see the wisdom, commitment, compassion, and skills that you all have brought to this internship. And I'm so happy we made this happen this year and I'm really looking forward to it. It's just growing in the future. That was really powerful. Thank you so much, Mano, for joining us today and for talking to us all about your experience. I think your story is such an inspiration to youth like us and we really appreciate you taking your time. Thank you so much, all of you. This has been a great afternoon and it's a great way to kick off the weekend. So.